Welcome to So-Called Discoveries, where we discuss stories, knowledge, and insights from somewhere and try to learn something. My name is Anthony Ozzie. In this episode, we are reflecting on our previous discussion of the effective executive. If you have not already listened to episode two, I recommend you do that first. We're going to be referring to the five practices to effectiveness discussed within that episode. As a quick reminder, they are managing your time, choosing contributions, building on strengths, focusing on priorities, and making effective decisions. We'll spend most of the time discussing how I've incorporated what I've learned from the book into my own life and in how I've changed my own behavior, as well as reflecting on some experiences from my past. I'd also like to highlight some key points that particularly stood out to me from each of the five practices. Before we get into that, I want to briefly discuss my experience with the book. I purchased The Effective Executive, and I had to look this up. I went into my Amazon account. I purchased it in June of 2018. I spent $12.71, including tax. Don't, don't worry. Don't worry, in case anyone's listening. I hope somebody's listening. Anyway, so I bought it in June 2018, and it sat on my shelf for about three and a half years. I do this a lot. I often hear about a book and it piques my interest in the moment and I buy it even though I don't intend to read it right away and I just set it on my shelf. And if it sparked an interest and felt relevant at some point, odds are at some point again in the future, it might feel relevant. So I picked up the book earlier this year and started reading it at a point in which I was craving content like this time management and productivity and trying to maximize results. Those subjects are highly important and relevant to me generally. For example, when it comes to time management, I I have a feeling sometimes like I'm always running out of time. Like I never have enough time to do the things that I want to do. And as a result of that, I crave more control over my time. I've continued to understand the importance and the power of how I spend my time, particularly when it comes to producing results. As I started reading the book, it was before I even got done with the second chapter that I was inspired to start my podcast based off of the subjects in this book. It's not that this podcast is going to be completely about the book or anything like that, but I was in the headspace of wanting to start a podcast and I was sort of struggling with the ideation process. Like, what what is it actually going to be about? I mean, what can I talk about? And I was picking up this book and reading it and getting into it. And I was like, you know what? It can be about anything. What am I doing right now? I'm looking into knowledge to try and better myself and to try and improve myself and change my own behavior and make my life better and produce better results and more results. Lots of people want that. So yeah, I could definitely read this book and digest the concepts and repackage it into a podcast. And that sent me down the those first initial steps of saying, okay, well, this is what the podcast is going to be. So (laughs) I guess I'm grateful that I bought the book a few years ago and it sat on my shelf and it was there when I needed it. As I was reading the book and, and studying it and breaking it down so I could understand it enough to produce a podcast episode on it, I also began to realize how prevalent and how foundational some of those ideas and concepts were. As I was consuming other content, you know, modern content, 
and listening to leaders currently and, and business people currently and hearing their advice and listening to their speeches and stuff like that, I began to see a lot of similarities and a lot of concepts that reminded me of the foundations that are found in this book. It's interesting. I mean, it came out in 1967, and it is a highly influential book, and there's a lot of work that is sort of built on top of those ideas. So kind of makes sense. It speaks further to something that I hinted at in a previous episode, which is that if you find that a lot of successful people are referring to a particular book that was published a long time ago, then it proves that there's something real in that book. I have a feeling that many of the times that I'm noticing similar ideas coming up that remind me of what I'm hearing from the book, maybe in some of those cases, the person talking about those ideas has read the book, but I have a feeling that in, in most of them, they have not actually read this particular book. They've just gotten that knowledge and information through some other way, through some other source, because it's a good idea and good ideas stand the test of time. Speaking of time, now let's move on to getting into the specifics of the five practices and my experience with them. The first practice is managing your time. And the the key here is to start with time, not tasks. And finding and knowing where your time goes is the first step there. So when it comes to recording time, this is something that I've been into even before reading the book. It was something that I was into on and off for various things. I would get into particular modes where I'd be wanting to record my time. For example, if I was focusing on a particular project or something. And then beyond that, I would also do it for keeping track of my work so I could always be in tune with how I was spending my work day. But as I started reading this book, particularly the chapter on time, I wanted to take it a little bit further. So for a couple of months, I actually recorded my time 24 hours a day, literally 24-7. And I mentioned in the previous episode that the method that you use to record the time doesn't actually matter. It's whatever makes sense to you. You can write it on a piece of paper or notebook. You can use the notes app on your phone, or you can use a dedicated time tracking app, which is what I did. That's what made sense for me because there's an app that I've been using for years already that I was familiar with that I knew would be natural for me and and, and would get the job done. That time tracking app is called Toggle. I have no affiliation with Toggle. They have a free version I have never paid for their premium account, but I've been using their free version for years. It's a very good tool. And the way it works is you have a start and a stop button. You click the start button when you're starting a new entry. You write whatever it is that you're doing. Keep that timer running for as long as you're working on that particular task. And then when you finish that task, you click stop and it records that as an entry. And then you click start again and and you write whatever it is that you're doing next. So for a couple of months, I literally tracked my time 24 hours a day. The last thing I would do at night before getting into bed is I would go into toggle, start a new entry and call it sleep and then go to bed and wake up in the morning. And the first thing I would do when I'd wake up is open toggle, stop the sleep entry. It would log seven hours, eight hours, however much sleep I got. And then I would start a new entry called morning prep. And then I would do all the things I need to do in the morning, you know, bathroom, brush your teeth, that kind of stuff. And then if I made some coffee, I'd say like making coffee. And then if I was starting to work, I would write the specific nature of whatever the task I was doing for work. If I was at the gym, I would go to the gym. If I was meditating or something like that, I would, I would always, whatever it was I was doing, I was always recording my time. If I was with friends, I would say, you know, out with friends or something like that. That might seem intensive. And yeah, it was, it was intensive. But what happens is my own personal time waste became 
evident to me. It was so clear because every time I was doing anything, I was always having to record the time. And then when I finished it, I would have to end it. I would just have to confront myself with the fact. It was like, okay, you just spent, I don't know, 27 minutes staring at your phone for no reason. Or you meant to take a 30-minute break and watch an episode on Netflix, but it ended up being three episodes and an hour and a half break. Another thing that became evident was certain patterns. If there was certain unproductive behaviors, unproductive demands on my time that I wanted to reduce, it was helpful to see if there were certain patterns that were leading up to it, such that I could see, okay, this tends to happen as a reaction to this, so I can be more aware of that, or better yet, maybe I can adjust my schedule or adjust my behavior such that that's not going to be a factor anymore, a problem anymore. As you're doing this day after day for a period of time, it just continues to get you thinking about how you're using your time, how you can be more efficient, how you can continue to optimize, and your time use will naturally and intuitively improve. The 24-hour time tracking is not something I'm going to do continuously. It's, like I said, it was something that I did for a couple of months. That said, it is something that I'm going to revisit on some sort of an interval. The book recommends a minimum of three to four weeks, at least twice a year, for effective time tracking and diagnosis and analysis. And from my experience, I think that's a pretty good rule. I'm going to plan on sticking with that. Twice a year, I'm going to commit to a three to four week period based on the book's advice. And for me, I'm going to make that 24 or seven tracking because I, I found a lot of benefit in doing it. From the perspective of the book, that's not really what they were going for. They weren't really thinking about 24 seven time tracking. They're thinking of the context of a work day. So if that makes more sense for you, if that applies to you and, and your priorities, so be it, you know, go for that. But for, for me, I found a lot of value in thinking of it holistically. Where I'm currently at with recording my time is essentially recording specific things that I want to prioritize and track. For me, that comes down to work, various projects that I have, work on this podcast, reading, cooking, working out. For me, these are things that I've defined that are priorities that I want to consistently have as a part of my life. So I'm choosing to record my time spent doing those things as a way of tracking and staying in tune with how I'm spending my time in them. Recording your time will, like I said, make you more in tune with it. But the time diagnosis and the analysis, actually sitting down with the intent of trying to improve and optimize your schedule and your time use, that's where you can get real improvements in lifestyle design. For me, doing that really helped my efforts when it came to planning and tracking overall. And it really added a, an element of direction of like, based off of what I've seen from recording my time and the diagnosis and the analysis... I should really be structuring my days a little bit differently, and that's going to factor into how I account for my planning for the day. And then also importantly, it's going to influence what I choose to track based off of my priorities. So time diagnosis and analysis, it's really helped me identify what is really important to me in terms of how I spend my time. It's helped me identify priorities, and it's helped me cut waste. Another key aspect of time management is consolidating discretionary time. And through the record and analysis, we become aware of where our discretionary time is, which, as a reminder, is time that is available and under our control. And once we've discovered it, we want to consolidate it into the largest possible chunks and then protect that time and do everything that we can to focus and get the important work done. Currently, I am not in a 9-to-5 role, so I have a high degree of control over my time and how I spend my time throughout most days when it comes to my work and, and the things that I prioritize. So attempting to consolidate that time for me is not 
a huge struggle at this point in time. But protecting it and focusing it, once I've identified where I want my chunks of discretionary time to be, protecting it and being disciplined about it is something that is highly important for me and and something that I've been thinking more about as I've been reading the book. And some of the things that I do personally that work for me is that I like to work early in the morning. It gives me a feeling of getting a head start and really getting a sense of accomplishment very early on. On a good day, I like to wake up at 5 a.m. At the very least, I like to be awake by 6 a.m. If I'm waking up after 7 a.m., it's I'm making some sort of a concession. Either I was up late the night before and I'm choosing to get a little bit more sleep or I just didn't have the discipline to wake up early and I just you know hit the snooze button or, or whatever it might be. So on my good days, I'm up at 5 and I start working on the things that are important to me that are my priorities. Beyond waking up and starting early, another thing that I do is really trying to eliminate all unnecessary distractions or disturbances. For me, this is about silencing any alerts or notifications. I put my phone on do not disturb, I put my computer on do not disturb, and I start a timer for however long that period of discretionary time is supposed to be. And until that timer goes off, I do everything in my power to eliminate any possible distractions from coming in and I try and stay focused. Another thing that helps me along those lines beyond the electronic do not disturbs and the timer is having some visual cues. I put up some sticky notes on the wall in front of me that basically give me some gentle reminders to stay focused because I also can have a tendency to daydream and get lost in thought and sometimes I'll start pacing. So if I do get lost in thought and then my mind wanders, sometimes a sticky note will catch my eye on the wall that says, focus, right, right, got to focus. <laughs> and I also have one on the door to leave my office that says, stay. Because like I said, I'll get lost in thought and I'll start pacing. And sometimes without even realizing it, I'll just leave my office and start walking around. I should clarify, I, I my office is in my home. I'm not like randomly walking around like a facility or something like that. I'm walking around like out of my office into like my living room and stuff like that. <laughs> But yeah, I like I have a, a sticky note on the door so there that says stay because and it's, it's it actually has worked like I'll, I'll start to walk towards the door and then I'll see this the note that says stay and I say like, oh crap I got to turn around and, and go back and start doing the work again. So yeah, those are some uh, some measures that I take to, to stay focused. All right, that's managing time. The next practice is choosing contributions. And this is about asking what can I contribute and looking for the unused potential. And it's about not relying on the job description. When I reflect on my past experiences, I'm not in a nine to five now, but I have worked at several different companies in several different jobs and a few different industries. So when I think about my past experience in those types of jobs, and I think about how I was successful in those roles, what was in the job description really had little to nothing to do with it. Of course, you consider the job description when you're thinking about the role and interviewing for it and trying to get a feel for it. But once you get hired, once you show up, I know at least for me, I wouldn't think too much about the job description. I'd, I'd pretty much forget about it. I would just show up and from there, it's just I just try to soak up everything that I can, learn as much as I can, ask as many questions as I can and figure out what it is that people do here. How does this company work? How do people achieve results? How do they create value? How can I create value? How do I fit into all of this? If instead I was just thinking about how can I do the job that's in this job description, I probably wouldn't have been as successful. It was because I was always looking for how things could be better and always looking for new opportunities and trying to figure out how I could best create value 
that I did well. Whenever I started a new job, I would always make sure to take time and effort to understand the contributions that other people would make. See, if you put in the time to understand that, you'll come to realize that not everybody makes the same levels of contributions. In fact, you're likely to discover a disproportionate percentage of the contributions come from a relatively small group of people. In understanding the contributions of others, particularly the key and top players, you can understand for yourself, how can I make the best contribution? How can I fit in here? What does success look like here? What is actually possible here? Not just what I've been told is possible, but based off of what I'm seeing, what is possible. Another important aspect to choosing contributions is holding yourself accountable for the performance of the whole. In one of my previous jobs, the company had a saying, be the CEO of your own role. And what it really meant is take responsibility, take ownership, take charge, make decisions. We are empowering you to make your own decisions. Having a value like that communicates an expectation of ownership and accountability to everyone. I also appreciated the part of the book where it talked about effective relationships when it comes to choosing your contribution. We should ask what contribution is required of me so that you can make your contribution. And we can think about this in the context of many aspects of our lives. In the workplace in particular, it's highly important that we think this way if we are going to attempt to define and create unique value. And we don't need to overcomplicate this. I'm reminded of a time once when I was starting at a new job and I was put on a project with a multidisciplined team. And although I had the skill set required for the job, I was new to the industry. And because I had just started, I was mostly observing the work being done in the team. And a lot of that work was being done through workshops and meetings with clients. So as a result, I was doing a lot of listening in, trying to learn and absorb as much as I could. So you might assume that I wasn't really in a position to create value for the team. After sitting in on a couple of these sessions, I realized that everyone on the call was highly engaged in the discussion. It was a very involved discussion, and it required input from many people. In order to help me follow along, I began taking notes. Although I didn't necessarily understand everything I was taking notes on or writing, I was listening to what was being said, and I was writing it down, following the conversation. And because I was new to the industry and a lot of the discussion was unfamiliar, doing this helped me follow along and helped me understand what I was hearing. So after one of the sessions, I looked back at my notes and cleaned them up, made them into some nice bullets, made them a little bit more readable, and I sent them to one of the guys on the team who was in the same position as me, and I was meant to be shadowing him on that project. He told me they were great and sent them off to everybody on the team. And right then and there, they saw my notes and they said, oh, he's not just someone who's sitting on the sidelines and, and listening and shadowing. He can actually contribute and he's getting involved and he's interested and he's picking things up. And he just created value by sending us notes of everything that was discussed and all the decisions that were made on the call. In fact, after that, one of the other guys on the team approached me and said, I can already tell hiring you was a good decision because you just started and you're already creating value. And then he also said, I can tell by the types of questions that you're asking and the way that you're following along that you really care and that you have a good attitude and that you're going to do really well here. I'm not saying this 
to brag. I'm saying this because what I did was extremely simple. I didn't do anything overly impressive. All I did was take a simple initiative that, honestly, to begin with, was to help me by taking notes. And then I put a little bit more effort to clean them up and make them more presentable and sent them out. And everybody said they were great. And then I started doing that every time. And I started sending it out every time. And people were highly appreciative. Even the project manager told me she highly appreciated what I was doing and that typically that was the task of a project manager to take notes and distribute them. And that because she was so highly engaged in the discussions as well, she was not able to do that as much as she would like to. And she was highly appreciative of it. So it was a simple thing and it created value and it boosted my reputation early on and left a positive imprint in those people's minds about me. I was also really interested in the part of the book where it said that a focus on contribution should be used to guide our self-development. This makes total sense. If you think about what is the most important contribution that I should be working on that will create the most value for the organization, you use that to say what skills, what knowledge, what development do I need in order to make that contribution. I also liked how it said a focus on contribution in your own work stimulates others around you to develop themselves as well because you're able to set the standard and the requirements through your own work. The last point I'll make about contributions is their relation in meetings or presentations or reports or podcasts. The key thing is to understand the contribution beforehand, state it up front, insist that the contribution is served throughout and then relate the conclusion to the original intent. Let me know at the end of this episode if you think I did a good job there. The next practice is building on strengths, and a big part of this was focusing most of our energy on strengths over weaknesses. It's about building on strengths and not building on weaknesses. After episode two came out, a friend of mine reached out to me, and this friend works in a large knowledge organization, And they told me, hey, I really liked your content. I really liked everything that was in episode two. I feel like a lot more people need to listen to that and need to understand those principles because I feel like that's a big part of why I'm good at my job is because of those principles. And then he said, I found the part about focusing on strengths and ignoring the weaknesses a little interesting. And I'm not totally sure I agree with all of it, although I think I agree with some of it or maybe even most of it. So I just want to take a little bit of time to clarify what my interpretation of what the book really means by that particular aspect of focusing on strengths over weaknesses. The important thing to understand is that focusing on strengths does not require us to forget about the weaknesses or ignore the weaknesses. In fact, we do not want to ignore the weaknesses or be blind to them. We must be aware of them. Inherently, to identify your strengths you must also be able to identify what is not a strength. And what is not a strength is potentially a weakness. I gave an example in episode two about a tax accountant, highly proficient in his trade of being a tax accountant, but not good at dealing with others. And we talked about this tax accountant in a small private practice compared to working in a large knowledge organization. In the small private practice, because he has to deal with other people because there's less of them, and he has to deal with clients and whatnot, He might be hindered by this ability. But in the large knowledge organization, they're able to make his weakness irrelevant. They don't ignore the weakness. They make it irrelevant by putting him in a position which he doesn't have to focus on communicating with people. He can simply focus on being a tax accountant. The 
alternative, if they were not to focus on strengths and make his weaknesses irrelevant, if they were to, for example, focus on the weakness and say, you are an excellent tax accountant, but your people skills are awful. We need to improve these things. We really need to work on this. And, and then they put him through some development training and maybe they give him a mentor to try and help him in this aspect. And now he's spending maybe 10 to 20% of his week, if not more, on trying to focus on these things. And it's taking away from his strengths. It's taking away from his real contribution. Or maybe even worse, when trying to hire that person or when considering hiring that person, if they were to say, he is an extremely strong tax accountant, but he has a weakness in the sense that he's not good at dealing with people. And then they were comparing him to someone who was average at accounting and average at communicating with people. They might say, well, this guy is not super great at either of these things, but he also is not weak. So he checks the boxes a little bit more. So we'll go with the average guy. And then they'll let go of the guy who would have been an awesome tax accountant. There's other examples too. If you are in sales and you work either independently or at a small organization, you may have a higher degree of responsibility when it comes to generating potential leads and understanding the process of how to find them when you have none. And if that is a weakness for you, or even if it's not a strength for you, you may not be able to do well in sales in those circumstances. But if you work in a large knowledge organization, you may have a funnel, you may have another part of the organization that is responsible for generating those leads and you can do what you really do best which is now that you have the leads now you can go in and execute now you can try and close the deal so it's not about ignoring weaknesses it's not about forgetting or being blind to the weaknesses it's about putting a higher degree of focus and energy on the strengths and figuring out how to maximize those strengths and how to minimize the weaknesses how to make them irrelevant but you have to be aware of them in order to do that Another thing I found interesting about focusing on strengths was the part about making your superior's strengths productive. And it's, that's about focusing and enabling on what your boss does well and thinking about how you can build upon that. And doing that and using that to define your own contribution ensures that our contribution is upward in the sense that it can be used up the hierarchy of the organization. Most importantly, building on strengths is about making productive what you can do. You think about what can I do? And then you lead from strength in your own work. The book specifies this is as much attitude as practice. It requires us to think for ourselves and understand what it is that I do well that seemingly comes easy to me relative to how it comes to others. An example of this for me in the context of software projects and software organizations, because that's where much of my background is. I understood that a lot of my value came from being in positions that required a high level of technical expertise and excellent communication skills. So they were all client-facing, technical, consulting-type roles in which I was a liaison interacting between non-technical and technical people and also responsible for design and delivery of a technical product. So whenever I was applying for a new job or looking for work, I would always lead with that. On my resume, I it was always very clear that that's where my expertise was and that's where my value came from. In an interview, I would make sure to highlight that and give examples and explain what I meant by that and talk about how I've created value in those ways in the past. After I got the job, as part of onboarding, as part of meeting my manager and having introductions and understanding how the company works, I would think of and look for ways I could create value through there and I would communicate that's something that I do 
really well. So if there's any opportunities, I would be a good option. And then from there, you have to show. You can't simply just talk about it. You have to actually show that you create value that way through your actions and through your intentions. That's building on strengths. Now, a few points on the next effectiveness practice, which is focusing on priorities. This is the second to last one. One is that there's always a time deficit. So that's why we really have to have a high importance of prioritizing because there's always a time deficit. There's never enough time to do everything that we need to do. And we need to feed opportunities and starve problems because exploiting opportunities creates results and solving problems restores yesterday. And we need to do things one at a time because that means doing things fast. It doesn't literally mean that things get done more quickly, it just means that you're focusing and the time it takes to get one individual thing is shorter because you're focusing on that thing and you're not letting anything else distract you until it's done and you've put in the work to understand that it is the top priority. The last practice to effectiveness is making effective decisions. I really liked how the book talked about thinking strategically and generically rather than solving problems individually. This is something I need to work on a little bit. I appreciated the book's emphasis on the fact that most problems are generic in the sense that they are a symptom of a larger underlying problem and that we should default assume that problems are generic and that in order to solve a generic problem, we need a decision that enacts a rule, policy, or principle. And then we handle each occurrence of that generic problem pragmatically. I also appreciated the emphasis on defining specifications and that this is the most difficult and one of the most important steps of decision making. Because to not satisfy the specifications in a decision means that that decision is ineffective. And that we also need to know when to abandon. Because if we are in a situation where we can no longer meet those specifications, then there's no point in continuing. We must abandon. It's been a failure. So for me, Putting in that time and effort into defining those specifications before making the decision as part of the process of making the decision is something that I also need to work on. Another thing that I really appreciated, not necessarily that I need to work on, but that I really identify with, is the importance of disagreement when it comes to decision making. Disagreement, conflict, critique, all of these things are important. And you have to be willing to change your mind. It has to at least be a possibility that you change your mind when you encounter conflict, when you encounter some disagreement, when you encounter someone who thinks differently. It's also important that if there is established disagreement, that's a good thing. And a decision is made and some of us disagree, that's okay. But those of us that disagree must accept the decision because it's the decision that's being made for the good of the organization and now you're responsible for making sure that that decision is successful. Disagreement is important. We need it to consider all the alternatives. If we don't do that, we risk being closed-minded. Having disagreement, having conflict allows us to gain an understanding of what we're actually talking about, of what the problem really is, and it stimulates our imagination. Effective decision makers are really interested in understanding why people disagree, and they assume that dissenters are intelligent and fair and that they just see things differently, and it's important to consider what they see. All right, that's effective decision making. Those are the five practices and the things that stood out to me as well as a few ways that I've incorporated them into my life and some things that it reminded me of from my past experiences. Again, this has been a reflection of The Effective Executive by Peter F. Drucker. If for some reason you've listened to this entire episode and you have not listened to episode two and you found this discussion interesting and want to learn more and understand more details, make sure you check that out. If you are enjoying these episodes and this content, 
in Apple and Spotify, you can give the podcast up to five stars as a rating. Make sure you go to the main podcast page and you should see an option there for giving it up to five stars if you're enjoying it. Also, if you're inclined to do so, feel free to get in touch. There is a link in the show notes with all of the ways that you can get in touch, email and various social platforms. Some of those social platforms are going to seem a little sparse if you're looking at them at the time of this episode's publishing, but I will be filling them out and posting some content to them, so feel free to connect there. Also in the show notes are a few links to things I mentioned in the episode. One is a link to buy the book The Effective Executive from Amazon. Two is a link to a Harvard Business Review article published by Peter F. Drucker, the author of this book, The Effective Executive, in 2004. And three is a link to Toggle, the time tracking app that I have used for years and continue to use. Again, no affiliation with Toggle. Thank you again for listening. Greatly appreciate you tuning in. And I hope these episodes are helping you learn something. Bye.